I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 126. Psalm 126. Uh, some people find the thought of uh, Christians being downcast, uh, struggling with despair. Some people think that that is uh, offensive or maybe even impossible. Um, some, some even explicitly teach this, uh, that if you're sorrowful, downcast, then there's something wrong with your faith. Uh, we see ver- that in, in variations of uh, you know, different types of prosperity preaching. Uh, others, of course, would not say that, um, but perhaps even inadvertently communicate this or think this way because Christians are those who are right with God, whose sins have been forgiven. We have the truth of God and his word. Uh, we possess the Holy Spirit and he works joy in his people, does he not? And so anything less than exuberance, anything less than than this constant sense of great joy and happiness to some might seem not possible or just simply unacceptable. Uh, it's some maybe weird anomaly or perhaps even uh, an obvious sin or deficiency in a person. Uh, but the Bible does not present the human condition that simply. And if we think that way, uh, that a Christian ought not to experience despair or sadness or sorrow or whatnot, then we'll either be disillusioned when we do experience trial and sadness, or we'll be tempted to put on some sort of false front. Uh, You know, we'll want to pretend that all is well because we wouldn't want to let other people know the truth as that would expose us. Uh, And it can lead to even greater despair for the person experiencing it, for the one in sadness. Uh, if the culture of the church will not permit, again, even inadvertently, will not permit those grieving to voice their trial and seek comfort uh, out of fear that they'll be viewed as someone with a deficient faith. And so over the last four years or so that I've been in this pulpit, uh, I've, I've tried to point out as often as the text we're in will permit it, uh, that while Christianity, the Christian, certainly is to know great joy, many joys, is to know comfort, uh, the Christian life is also to be viewed as battle. And so periods of sadness, difficulty, distress, they do occur. Uh, Even as we grow in greater joys, Uh, Along with that, we do experience sadness and difficulty and trial. And our ultimate experience of unfettered joy and uninterrupted joy is something that we yet await. It's something that we look ahead to when the Lord Jesus returns. And Psalm 126, as we come to this this afternoon, reminds us of these realities once again. Uh, The Psalms, as we've said a number of times, uh, have been sung uh, by the church throughout the church church's history, really up until very recent times. Uh, these are not mere expressions of Old Testament religion, uh, but contain much for the New Covenant believer. And so, again, with that in mind, we want to turn to Psalm 126. Let's read this together, and then we'll spend time considering it. 
Uh, Psalm 126. A song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Uh, This psalm comes in the middle of a group of songs, uh, psalms known as Songs of Ascents, uh, between Psalm 120 and 134, that's what we have. And the most probable and widely held uh, view about these Songs of Ascents is that they were uh, rehearsed and sung by Israelites as they would be going up, uh, ascending to Jerusalem, to Zion, Uh, for worship, when they would be going on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Exodus 34 tells us that at least three times a year, for sure the males of the house were called to go to Jerusalem for feasts and festivals. So most likely this is something that they would rehearse and sing as they were on their way to Jerusalem. So as this, this particular song of ascent begins, it starts with a memory of restoration. Uh, If you're taking notes, that's the first point, a memory of restoration. And we see that in verses 1 to 3. If you look at verse 1 again with me, it says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Uh, This verse looks back on this previous occasion, this previous time when the Lord restored the fortunes of his people, uh, namely Zion, Jerusalem. And, and, And he recounts how when this occurred, It was at first to them like a dream, meaning it seemed too good to be true. Uh, Could this be real? Is this really happening? We seem to be like those who dream. This can't be real. Too unbelievable. But then in verse 2, he says, Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. And so it was like a dream, but then reality hit them. They weren't dreaming. Uh, They weren't waking up from this. And that initial shock and amazement gave way to celebration, to laughter, to shouts of joy. Even the nations, some of Zion's neighbors, even they had to acknowledge that Yahweh has done great things for them. Now, if you remember last week when we were in Psalm 137, this is kind of the opposite of what we saw last week, right? Where their, their captors were mocking and taunting them uh, with, sing us the songs of Zion. You recall that? This is, in many ways, the opposite. And even the nations are saying, wow, this, that is impressive. Their God has done good to them. And in verse 3, the people of the Lord affirmed what the nation said. Verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. They're grateful for this. This is a a remarkable restoration that they have occurred, a a mountaintop experience, if you will. There's some uh, debate uh, about what experience in Israel's history that this is referring to. Uh, Some translations of verse 1 say, When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, 
uh, which would seem to indicate that perhaps this is talking of the restoration of the Jews from Babylonian exile back into the land, back into Jerusalem and into Judah, the surrounding area. This is a very common understanding of the setting of this psalm. And even if verse 1, even if that's not the best translation, the captive ones, this is still a very likely, and I would say very plausible, uh, historical context for what is written here. Because if we think about what has been written here, this remarkable restoration that God has done, and, and such that it draws the attention even of, of surrounding nations, uh, that, does, that would fit with their return from exile. The fact is, returning from exile to reconstitute your land, um, even with the money, even with money given by the king of Persia, granted to help with the cost, to cover the cost, this kind of thing was simply unheard of. Uh, This did not happen. It did not occur. And so it seems that's It would be very reasonable for others to look on and and be amazed by this. Other people would point out that the language here is is not uh, just use of of literal captives returning from another land. Uh, Job 42.10 Uh, The same language is used there to speak of the Lord restoring the fortunes of Job. You remember all the catastrophe that happened to Job. He was not taken off into exile, but he certainly suffered and knew hardship before the Lord restored his fortunes. So, again, it, it could be, whatever the context, it could be that we're not told explicitly, in part because, as with other Psalms, it, it helps to make for a wider application to suffering various forms of of sadness and despair and difficulty. Before we get to that, this psalm does recount for us this this remarkable restoration the Lord had done for his people. And if you are indeed a, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sure you've had moments of great joy, moments of great blessing that you can look back on, that you can point to, moments perhaps of answered prayers from the Lord where there was exuberant gladness of heart. Maybe it was the um, all clear that you got from a doctor or one of your loved ones received from a doctor. Perhaps it was just a, a moment when a very confused path forward very suddenly became clear as the Lord answered prayers. Uh, perhaps it was the restoration of a strained and difficult relationship. There's a, a thousand different experiences you could have had to bring this sort of joy And of course, maybe most obvious would be the experience of salvation itself. Everyone's conversion to Christ, every believer's conversion is a little bit different. Uh, For some of you, the matter was very drastic, very sudden. And you remember well uh, the overwhelming joy that came to you upon believing the good news of the gospel, knowing that the holy and almighty God had forgiven your sins, had had washed you clean and had granted you eternal life. Uh, and perhaps you remember then uh, the days that followed, the, uh, the joy of opening the Word of God and, and just drinking it down and enjoying it and, and, and hardly being able to wait to, to read it again. For others, particularly maybe if you grew up in the church, 
it might not be as, maybe wasn't as stark. Uh, But I would submit you still can remember many great joys of your salvation. The joy of growing clearer in your understanding of the gospel, gaining clarification in the reality that you've been justified by faith alone, that even the very best of your goodness apart from Christ merited you nothing. The joy that you've felt has been brought to you in moments when you've been confronted by your sin yet again. In those moments of being crushed by your sin once more, how great it is to recall that the justification, your justification, is based purely in the person and the work of Christ, not through any merit of your own. How relieving and joyous that is in moments of failure and sin. This psalm begins with a memory of a great restoration for the Lord's people. But secondly, it moves to a prayer for restoration. A prayer for restoration. The the recollection of a joyous occasion in verses 1 to 3 gives way here in verse 4 to a request for another restoration, for further help from the Lord. So look at verse 4 again. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. In those first three verses, he mentions this restoration that occurred. But when we get to verse 4, it's clear that that occasion from verses 1 to 3 is now in the past. That is behind him. And the psalmist again and the people of God, as he's talking about we and our, are again in need of the Lord's help. He's employing this happy memory to stir up faith and hope in the midst of a, a present distress. And, and this is a pattern we see over and over in the Psalms, do we not? We've, we've noted this throughout it. This recollection of God's faithfulness in times past, this pouring out of, of prayer and requests for help in the moment, and expressions of confidence that the Lord is still good and in control. This is a very, very common pattern. So again, when the author wrote this psalm, the the joys of verses 1 to 3 and the experience of that restoration is is a thing of the past. A fresh trial has descended upon the people again, and so there is need to call out again for the Lord to restore. Again, a reminder that the Lord's people do not live perpetually on the mountaintop. Sometimes, Pleasant days do give way to difficult ones. That does not negate the good days of the past. But it is a reality. The Lord takes his people through valleys. The restoration here that's asked for is likened to streams flowing in the Negev. Uh, The Negev is a desert region that was in the southern part of uh, the old Israelite territory. Uh, the, the tribes of, of Simeon and Judah inherited this area. Simeon was eventually swallowed up by the tribe of Judah. The region was arid. It was very dry. Very little rainfall throughout the year. So this picture then of streams flowing through the Negev is a visual of a desperately needed life-giving crop growing water racing through an otherwise very dry land. This is the the picture that's given of the situation, of the need for the Lord's people to restore them. Just as 
springs flowing through the Negev bring restoration, refresh it. Now this situation could describe all kinds of moments uh, in Israel's history, obviously. And if verses 1 to 3 do look back on Israel's return, uh, the Jews' return from Babylonian exile uh, at the command of Cyrus, king of Persia, after the Babylonian empire had passed from the scene. Uh, If that's what verse 1 to 3 refers to, then this would be written sometime after that, obviously, and could refer to any number of difficult situations that the nation faced following their initial joyful return. Not all their neighbors appreciated what the Lord had done for his people. You read through Ezra, you read through Nehemiah, you, you see their opposition very clearly. A number of enemies did rise up did oppose their reconstruction. Uh, They slandered them, even writing slanderous letters to the king uh, about the evil intentions of the people as they rebuilt. Moreover, the hearts of many of the Jews also grew cold in time, grew lethargic to the work. If you remember, uh, even even they needed prophets to come and, and Give them a boost. Call them back to the work of rebuilding the temple. Haggai and Zechariah are two two such prophets. By the time of Malachi, the nation was even feeling abandoned by God. Things were not that great. They thought they questioned God's love for them. They thought he's abandoned us. He doesn't love us anymore. He's not with us. Of course, Malachi has to point out to them that the problem is not with God, but in themselves and with their own hearts and their own lack of faith. And so what this reminds us of is we have this recollection of this past great restoration and now this difficulty that's upon them. And as we remember the the history of, of the Jews, even after returning to the land, that although the people were restored to the land, the full expression of the kingdom of God was not yet realized on the earth. Many of the old problems that plagued the nation of Israel returned to them even after they returned from exile. And the faithful among the nation still suffered and still had to call out to the Lord for help. They needed restoration again. Yes, the Lord had done great things for them, but there was more left to be done. There was more help needed. Uh, Even, and if you jump ahead, even when Christ did come, even when the long-awaited and promised Messiah did come, he did not usher in the fullness of his kingdom all at once. Uh, The Jews were looking for this political revolutionary to arrive, and this political revolution never came with Jesus. He came the first time to earn salvation For all who would trust in him, to deal with sins, to merit righteousness on behalf of those who place their faith in him, pay the penalty for their sins upon the cross as he died in their stead. And so Jesus did talk about the kingdom arriving. The good news of the kingdom is proclaimed as the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection are preached throughout the world. And as we summon people to turn from sin, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is how People enter that kingdom. And so this kingdom is here, but it is here in part now. It is indeed a spiritual kingdom. 
Jesus has ascended to the Father's right hand, and we await his return to usher in the fullness of his kingdom, when all his people will be raised with imperishable bodies, forever to dwell with one another and with the Lord himself. And so in the here and now, as Christians, we can look back on our uh, wondrous calling to eternal life. We experience times of great joy. And yet, since sin does remain in the world, and since we battle indwelling sin within us, within ourselves, that has not yet been fully purged, and since we have a great enemy of our souls, Satan, who seeks to destroy God's work, we will face trial, which will make calling out to the Lord for help a continual necessity. On this side of glory, we will need his help in everything. And we say, come, Lord Jesus, come, complete this work. Bring the, rest of your, the, the fullness of your kingdom to pass, the final restoration of all things. And so it's just not unusual to face difficulty as the Lord's people. It is not unusual to feel that pain and anguish in your bones. Right? And I'm not just saying we know intellectually as believers that there are difficult things that people face and there is evil in the world. It's something we just know in our heads. We often experience it so deeply, it is something that is accompanied with weeping, which we'll get to in just a moment here. We don't just know intellectually that trial and sorrow is part of the world. We experience it. We live it in various ways. And we will until the fullness of the Lord's kingdom is established. Isaiah tells us that Jesus himself, remember, the perfect one, Truly man, perfect man, but truly man, was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Even as the perfect one, unstained by any sin of his own, he experienced grief and sorrow as he came to the earth, walked among us, walked amongst sin and death, and then, of course, obviously, then took the sins of his people upon himself and suffered death himself. And so we see here in Psalm 126 a memory of a great restoration followed by a prayer for further restoration. And finally, we see confidence in restoration. I'll look at verse 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. So this confidence in the Lord is here revealed with this imagery of a farmer sowing seed in the field amidst tears, amidst weeping, that is amidst great difficulty. And yet, then later, gathering a harvest with shouts of joy. There's difficulty and sorrow now, but later it will turn to joy and to celebration. Uh, this is the hope and expectation that God will answer and come to our aid once again. 
This may well be based on the hope, the, as, the, as the psalmist is, is writing these words, this may well be based on the hope that, as we discussed last week, that there were many promises from God that he had made that were left unfulfilled at this point in Israel's history. The Christ had not yet arrived, even though they were back in the land. You would think maybe it's right around the corner here, but it was hundreds of years yet until the Messiah arrived. And so the people must conclude there will be an even greater restoration on the way because it hadn't come to pass yet. And God is a God who keeps his word. And so there's a confidence that there will yet be joy for the nation, for the people of the Lord. Additionally, if the context of this psalm is indeed a post-exile, then it's quite possible that there's something of a literal sowing and reaping in mind here. Uh, Many commentators point to the fact that the land would have been dormant um, for many years while Israel was gone, while the people, the Jews were gone from Judah. And as they came back and repopulated the land and began cultivating their fields, their vineyards, and so on, it would have been a lot of work. And the work, while joyful on one hand, you know, we're back, we're in the land, this is a good thing, it also would have brought up memories. Memories and, and the knowledge that their failure as a nation before God, their sins are the very reason why their work is so hard. Right? The land that needs all this work to plant a crop is this way, in this condition, because of our sins. And then if you back up even further, you would recall the very reason that all labor is toil and difficult is because of sin's entry into the world. When God cursed the world after Adam's sin. And so there's all kinds of reasons why opportunities for weeping along the way. And yet I'd add that it's also significant that they're not just sitting there in their tears, but seeking to make the most of the land that God had given them, getting to work in the fields that he had given to them. They're plowing onward through tears in hope of blessings to come. And I think there's much here for Christians to resonate with, for the New Testament believer to resonate with. The Lord has done great things for you and I, including, again, most notably, your salvation, forgiveness of your sins. And you rejoice. You rejoice in this, in your heart being set free from slavery to sin. You've seen transformation from who you once were. Again, for some of you, it's very drastic and dramatic, such that even others around you who don't believe in the Lord found it maybe amazing and could celebrate with you to some extent. But as I've said, such exuberance and mountaintop experiences, they don't last forever in our fallen condition. It's not any less grand as time goes on, but the joy of it can ebb and flow. And of course, new trials also roll in. The reality of the Christian life as a battle kicks in. And there's struggle with sins that are more intense than you ever thought would be possible. Fighting with fears that you never knew you had or you never used to have. There's the strain of living in a fallen world 
the pain of death, the agony of apostasy around you, the presence of hardened unbelief, the presence of false teachers causing much confusion, the realization of your own weakness and inability and finiteness, the growing and sometimes crippling pains of getting older, of your physical body wearing out, another reminder of life in a fallen world. There's the suffering of disease for you, for those of your loved ones. And so we live through these things. They are real things. And we have much need continually for the Lord's help and for further restoration. And yet even as we experience these things, life continues to move on. We still have to function. We still have to get up. Function as church members, as husbands, as wives, as parents, as employees, as bosses, in the midst of it all. There's work to be done for the Lord. We have gifts He has given us to exercise for the benefit of our fellow brothers and sisters. We seek to carry on with our Christian duty. And any of these trials that I've mentioned, and again, there could be a hundred more, they are reasons why our labors for the Lord, our sowing, is often done amidst tears and weeping. And so we we call out to the Lord for help, and we get about the business of our Lord in our daily lives and our daily vocations. And as we do this, we trust that these efforts are not in vain because the Lord Jesus will return. And at that time, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, this perishable body, this is true of believers, at the time the Lord Jesus returns, must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? It's hard to read of of sowing and reaping and not think of Jesus and his parables, and specifically the parable of the sower. The sower, if you recall, is the one who sows the word of God. And the parable is not about the difficulty of the task of sowing. Uh, It's focused upon uh, teaching us about the various responses to the gospel when the gospel is preached and proclaimed. Uh, Nevertheless, we do know that the work of the church in proclaiming God's word and preaching the gospel in the church and outside of the walls of the church, the metaphorical walls of the church, we know that this is often met with trial. This is often met with difficulty. Sometimes the gospel work goes forth with much anguish, much difficulty and hardship. Uh, We see this in the life of Paul, do we not, in the book of Acts. We see much fruit, but we see much suffering as well. And though Acts doesn't always indicate it, there are places elsewhere where we find out that not only was Paul suffering externally, sometimes we think Paul just never seems to have felt it. He's just Superman or something like that and has no feelings and he just is able to handle all this and it's no big deal. But there are places in his letters where we find that that's not exactly the case. He speaks of having a great anxiety over the churches that he was responsible for, that whom he served as an apostle. 
And at one point, while he was in Asia, he tells the Corinthians, uh, this is perhaps when he was in Ephesus, he told the Corinthians, due to the affliction that they had received, he and the others with him, he says, we were so utterly burdened beyond, beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That's 2 Corinthians 1.8. He knew sorrow and laboring in the midst of it. Whatever the response to the word of God, we keep preaching, we keep spreading it, we keep supporting others who are out there preaching it as well. And we do so with the hope of a harvest. And indeed, we know when the Lord Jesus returns and when he separates the wheat from the chaff, he will have the full number of his elect. He will have the price for whom he died. And so if a time of sorrow or weeping comes upon you as an individual believer or upon us as a church together, remember the goodness that God has shown you. Remember the goodness God has shown to his people throughout history that we can see in his word. Call out to him in prayer and then set your eyes ultimately to the fullness of his kingdom to come when the Lord Jesus returns and keep on in steady service to our King. For all those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Uh, the tears will not be the final say. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Again, I, I thank you that it reveals to us life as it truly is in its complexity. That your word does not shy away from the fact that there are many things we don't understand and that we can expect a measure of suffering in this world. As we just live as human beings in a fallen world, fallen people ourselves, amidst other fallen people. And then, of course, unique struggles that come to those you've redeemed as we face opposition, as we battle now with indwelling sin, as we learn more of, of what is good and righteous in your word and, and, and get filled with angst even as we see loved ones and people around us denying your word and continuing on in the destruction of sin. Father, we, we thank you though that not only do you just tell us these things are so, but you give us wonderful promises to cling to. Father, we do pray for your help in these days to be wise, to be gracious, to know how to love our neighbors, for courage is needed. Keep us from living our days in, in fear and in timidity, in whatever form that might take. Help us, Father, to, to strive for clean consciences and to seek to honor you and fear you above man. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the, the wonderful promise of his return. I pray that this would be a comfort for us, that we would be certain and sure of your words 
clear teaching of his coming return. That we would be more than willing to pick up our cross and follow the Lord Jesus, seeing it is worth it. To not make the fool's bargain of trying to save our life now, only to lose it in the end. Father, we, we pray for your, your hand upon us. Um, we, we do, I do pray for every individual here who's, who is struggling with despair right now, who, who is in a, a low season, that you would graciously hold them and carry them through, that you'd help us as a church to be patient with one another when we go through these, these times. Father, impress upon each of our hearts the wonderful glory of Christ and may we be able to rest in your promises and not be filled with vexation Father turn away our sorrow replace it with greater joy Father give us patience to endure and to press on we, we declare together that you are good you are sovereign over all we, we love you, though, again, we confess it's not a love, the, the love you deserve. You deserve so much better from us. And so we rejoice in your grace to us. We thank you for your mercy and goodness. And we pray all these things together in the name of Jesus. Amen.